sort of capabilities that you need to engage with authentic problems in the real world rather than simply sitting in a class listening to an expert. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, SOLAR. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Shibani Antonet from the University of Technology, Sydney, the host for this episode. With the advances in technology and artificial intelligence, the world is rapidly changing. And so are the demands of life and work in the 21st century. In this age, we need to prepare learners for jobs that don't yet exist to solve problems that we don't know yet. And these require special skills. In today's episode, we will learn all about these skills, preparing learners for the future, and how learning analytics can play a part. I'm pleased to have two special guests joining us, Professor Ruth Crick and Dr. Elizabeth Cole. Could you tell us a bit about yourselves? Sure. I'm Ruth and I'm based in the UK. I'm visiting professor of learning analytics at the University of Technology, Sydney. I was originally a teacher before I became an academic and now I'm director of a community interest company working with learning power and learning analytics. Hi, my name is Elizabeth and I'm a senior research scientist in the Lifelong Learning Cognition and Wellbeing program in the Centre for Research Pedagogy and Practice at the National Institute of Education in Singapore. And I'm also an Assistant Dean Research Support in the Office of Education Research. My research interest is in uh, learning analytics in computer-supported collaborative learning, so where I actually work with schools, teachers to co-design learning analytics interventions for 21st century competencies, mainly in teamwork and also critical thinking and creativity. Ruth, can you tell us a bit about your work in learning analytics? Yeah, sure. So my work in learning analytics is all about how to provide individuals and teams with information about how they go about learning, i.e. how they tend to respond to risk, uncertainty and challenge. And given that data about themselves, enable them to get better at learning itself. Great. So to start our conversation and get our audiences familiarized with the terms, can you tell us what 21st century skills or competencies are? Everybody has a list of 21st century competencies or skills, and there's an awful lot of confusion about the language. Perhaps the best place to start is with the World Economic Forum, who've identified the most in-demand skills for 2020. And at the top of the list, they have complex problem solving, then critical thinking, Um, then creativity and a whole list more of what are often called soft skills. So these are the sorts of values, attitudes, dispositions, uh, knowledge solving capabilities that people need to engage with the risky, uncertain, unpredictable world of the 21st century. Hmm. Elizabeth, would you like to add on to it? Yeah, there's no one universal definition for 21st century skills. Uh, Many organizations, institutions have defined it uh, in all sorts of ways. But what we generally understand is what Ruth has pointed out. They are to do with knowledge, skills, attitudes, dispositions. Uh, We recognize that they are important for learners, for individuals, teams to succeed and thrive uh, for the 21st century and beyond. 
some people call them the four C's, creativity, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and there's definitely, there's a lot more, um, including adaptability, some, some people talk about those. So there's actually a whole range of uh, skills that are to do with 21st century skills. Uh, but whatever they are, they are actually look, looking at it beyond the typical math mastery of a certain academic topic, but related right. to skills that are useful for the 21st century. Right. So the key is that we are focusing not just on the curriculum and the content of the topic, but going beyond for more higher order competencies. Yes, that's a good way to describe it, actually. The sort of capabilities that you need to engage with authentic problems in the real world, rather than simply sitting in a class, listening to an expert and downloading what you're told and then repeating it. So they're much more authentic and grounded and embodied. And also they're developed over time in the process of doing something rather than simply listening to information or reading information. Okay. Can you tell us why these higher order competencies are important for future learners, even more so than before? Or has it always been important? I think it's always been actually hugely important Um, and historically if you go back to Socrates you know way back um, it's always been attended to in today's world the change is so rapid and so unpredictable that I think they've really come to the fore as a big big challenge for education at all levels. Yeah I agree these skills are more important I'm not that they were not important in the past, but now there's a greater emphasis because we do see that the world is rapidly changing in, into knowledge-based economies and uh, there's a lot of uh, use of digital uh, social networks and the pace of change is getting faster. So whatever we're learning, content that we're learning in school will be relevant, but it will increasingly face, I would say, new knowledge that is coming in. So how do learners deal with this new knowledge? How do they continue to learn and uh, continue to relearn, so unlearn, <laughs> and, and learn all these new things. So these 21st century communities actually focus a lot more about the learners, how to learn, continuous learning as they go on. So that's why they are quite important. Yeah, I think a good way of looking at it is to look at both knowledge and agency. With knowledge, there are funds of knowledge that exist that every student has an entitlement to engage with. But also there are problems we don't know what knowledge we need to solve the problems with. And in conditions of uncertainty, we're looking at identifying and collecting and curating the information and the data we need to solve the problem rather than going to the expert because the problem has already been solved. And then the other element of it is agency. If you simply have to absorb what experts know, you don't need a huge amount of agency. But if you have to solve a complex problem in the real world, you need to become a self-directed learner uh, in order to become the pilot and not the passenger in your own learning. And we need to be able to assess them and we need to be able to use technology to support their development. Yeah, we are definitely interested in how technology can support this. So can you tell us a bit more about how learning analytics specifically can help enhance such 21st century skills among learners? From the work that I do, providing rapid feedback to an individual about themselves as a learner, for example, what they say about their own curiosity or their creativity or their mindfulness, that data, that information that you can feedback immediately via learning analytics is a focus for turning 
diagnosis into a strategy for change, i.e. for agency, for learner agency. And so the immediate feedback and the way of presenting feedback visually rather than as a grade provide feedback in the right form. It enables someone to understand themselves as a learner and take responsibility. So the immediate feedback for formative assessment and for self-assessment is a key affordance of learning analytics, which we didn't have 30 years ago. Yeah. Yes, I agree with Ruth's uh, sharing of how learning analytics helps to enhance 21st century skills among learners. And uh, for myself, I refer to uh, many works, including the work of Alyssa Wise, where she talks about how learning analytics should be pedagogy driven. And there are certain, certain key principles in learning analytics intervention designs, including integration, agency, reference frames, and dialogue. I'm also interested in similar work as Ruth. So I do see how learning analytics can be used as a way to give feedback to learners when students, learners are in the process of working, using the system, process of doing their work. But in general, learning analytics, I just want to emphasize that learning analytics needs to be pedagogically designed so that it's not just any system that learners use, but it, there's a pedagogical goal towards how learning analytics systems are designed. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Elizabeth, that the dog has to wag its own tail. And if the, the technology or the analytics drives the process, then that's not good for learners. So for learning analytics, we have to have it that way around which I think makes it complex because the process of learning is messy and it's complex. How do you assess whether somebody is really taking responsibility for themselves? Semantic analysis of text is a possibility. You can look at text to see whether someone's really using language in such a way that they're owning the process. Say curiosity, how do you know and assess whether someone's developing their curiosity? Well, you can ask them, which may be not very reliable, or you can observe what they do. Um, So it's a complex process that requires multiple types of assessment and multiple types of data to do justice to it. My big takeaway from this conversation is that it's complex and we'll need to collaborate to get it right. You know, it's a huge elephant. Everybody's got a little bit of it. Yeah. And these skills are quite complex by themselves to even assess them without technology. Yeah, Ruth has really highlighted one of the big challenges is the assessment, the indicators of how, how do we measure and assess 21st century skills? And that's a, a larger problem beyond uh, even using learning analytics. Even typical face-to-face scenarios, how do we measure and assess 21st century competencies? Even though there are affordances, as what uh, Chibani is talking about, there's still going to be challenges there. Yes, and I think the big pedagogical challenge, which then gives us an indication of what learning analytics needs to do, is the question is there an underlying set of learning design principles that we can identify that operate in any process where somebody is becoming competent? So when we do workplace learning and we have assessment events, we require a story of significant change that's personal, a story of the innovation itself, and then a poster with evidence of the thinking and knowledge generation that has gone into solving the problem. And of course, those are supported by learning analytics, but not coherently. And you touched upon this earlier, that it is quite complex and it takes time to develop. You probably Mm -hmm. can't do it one shot, do a session and someone becomes really good critical thinker. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this particular aspect? Yeah, I mean, if, if you take something like creativity and you're working with seven and eight year olds in a primary school classroom, we can design 
experiences for those youngsters that require creativity and we can form a view on the creative outputs of their work but the level of that creativity will be very different than if you've got for example a bunch of engineers working on an aircraft carrier but the processes of creativity are very similar and you can still create the conditions where it's possible to be creative and you can also um, assess outcomes the holy grail is to look for these qualities that are basically human qualities that develop over the, over a life cycle over a person's lifespan effectively and then build them into the curriculum because what what we assess is what we get so which is why the learning analytics is now so important because it does offer us the ability to assess differently from where we've come from so would you say we can actually enhance these skills can we teach a person to be creative i i think we can i think we're all born with creativity like in the sense of using my imagination and my intuition risk taking playfulness you don't have to tell a 3 year old how to be creative we can design learning experiences where they're valued and assessed and developed we can assess creativity actually because you assess poetry you know mm. it's just we do it differently from how you might assess math or other types of ways of knowing that's great to know so can you give us a bit more specific examples of how learning analytics can help enhance these skills so one of the challenges we're looking at in journey at the moment is how can you support learning relationships how can you support coaching conversations and how can you take ai which can be used say in a customer journey to develop next best actions for customers can we use that same ai technology to provide next best questions for the learner which is the context of a learning journey and can we um from all the data that we have about an individual on a learning journey in a particular context can we use ai to furnish the next best questions and therefore can we also find ways of not only scaffolding the learner but the coach by providing those providing a scaffolding for coaching conversations through using ai and semantic analysis of tech so that's a cutting edge field i don't think it's happened yet but it's you know there's lots of potential Great. Could you give us examples from your work, Elizabeth? My work has been focused a bit more on younger learners. Uh, I won't say they are very young, but they are in the ages of thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, or sixteen-year-olds. And I've also looked at older learners who are probably uh, adult learners. What my team and I have been doing is we've been building on this idea of formative learning analytics, being able to. visualize aspects of their learning disposition or learning progress to the students to help them to actually get feedback about it to be aware of it then to reflect on them and to goal set and to monitor their progress one specific example or tool that we have developed is my group work buddy so this is a tool for teamwork or any kind of school project that the students might be doing so we have tried it in different subjects such as in geography in the dismi project works so a broader project and so on you mentioned that you implemented it across different subjects in the schools can you tell us what the students actually do in these interventions So basically students are in a team they work in a team and through the process we ask students to rate themselves and their peers so it's a self and peer feedback there's a survey inside basically is using dispositional analytics it's visualized in a dashboard to give them feedback about their teamwork from that visualization they think back of why it is like that and think forward of how they can you know do better in this and they continue to monitor 
augmentation to this is we are continuing continue to work on uh, the team chat that we have been developing since way back. Through the discourse of the chat, the chat lines identifying indicators of language of teamwork that coincides with these dimensions of teamwork that we are focusing on. So what are your findings and outcomes? Altogether, we are looking at four dimensions of teamwork, which is to do with the process of teamwork, such as mutual performance monitoring, coordination, constructive conflict, and team emotional support. We get students to think about these as they uh, work on their projects. So basically, this process of helping students more, become more aware, and as we also hear from qualitative feedback from the students that Usually in schools, uh, so I'm from Singapore, and many of the schools that we have, um, they do emphasize on collaboration and teamwork, but it's not made so explicit in the classroom. So this is one of the first times that they really understand, oh, so teamwork is actually comprising you know, these different aspects, and they're able to more concretely uh, understand what teamwork is, this more abstract concept, be more aware, and also track their teamwork along the way. That sounds great. So what challenges are out there? One of the key simple ideas about learning journey and data is that you need a data architecture that has a single view of the learner, particularly if we want to scale learning analytics that um, supports the learner. So an awful lot of data systems are built for the researchers or for the leaders of organisations. And having a data architecture that is built around the learner so that the learner owns their own data and their own process or journey through the data is pretty important. In our learning journey platform, for example, everybody is a learner and you can have different roles at different levels. So everybody starts as a learner and they can engage in a learning journey and do their learning power profiles and then figure out where they want to go with that. Mm. And would it apply to learners of all ages? I think it applies to learners of all ages. Once a learner can go online and use technology, then this, it's a fundamental learning architecture principle, in my view, for learning analytics. So we probably need to rethink how the systems are constructed and to think about what data is being collected. Yeah, it's, it's about having the fundamental data architecture right so that the learner is the, the unit of attention change and the learner can be self-directed in their own journey and, and I think that's a big challenge because it's expensive. You know, it, to do this sort of thing at scale is hugely expensive. That's one of the big challenges we face as a learning analytics community is how can we do something at scale that's really robust? That's a wicked problem in its own right. Right. Essentially, that's what banks do. You know, they have a single view of the customer. We need systems like this that have a single view of the learner that are driven by the pedagogy, as Elizabeth so rightly says. I think that's a very powerful analogy. But I mean, learning is in the hands of the learner. The data should be uh, for the learner. And so actually one of the tensions we, we face is, because I work with teachers in schools, is that also the, the teachers, are the, or I would say the stakeholders, the guardians of the data, are sometimes not so comfortable in putting the data in the students' hands for whichever reasons. Students might not understand the data. I think that's the number one concern. Students might not, how, mm. might not know how to interpret the data. Students might abuse the data or gamify the data to a certain extent. So these are some of the tensions. We do understand the concerns because uh, I mean, these are younger learners. So how do we create dashboards that are uh, meaningful enough so that students, learners are able to interpret them in, a, I would say, in a, in a positive manner and not something that you know, makes them feel defeated or makes them feel uh, uncomfortable and so on. It's a research and practice problem that we are all, uh, I think many researchers are looking at how to improve dashboard designs. 
that's absolutely yep. critical. And behind that, of course, is the whole way we measure success in education in general. And until I think until our assessment systems change, we're going to have that problem. So with learning power feedback, it's an immediate feedback, which is quite personal to the individual. Nobody else sees it. But we chose right from the beginning never to put any numbers on it, because as soon as somebody sees a form of feedback with numbers on it, then they'll say, oh, I'm bad at this and good at that. And mm-hmm. so there's a whole culture of measurement that actually runs counter to the ethical and pedagogically driven deployment of learning analytics. And I think that's a massive problem. So the solution, I think, is to design pedagogically driven assessment frameworks for these 21st century capabilities, not not lists, uh, sort of underlying learning architecture that is capable of assessing self-leadership learning relationships and leadership and complex problem-solving skills. And if we had an assessment framework that was robust and developed collaboratively over time, then I think it would be much easier to address the challenges that Elizabeth has pointed out, because what we measure is what we get. That's why we are all looking at formative assessment. It's not assessment for scoring, you know, to, to pass the next bench, but it's really assessment for learning. And that yeah. uh, principle and that attitude in the classroom is something that I have to constantly repeat in all my interventions, be it adults or, or younger learners, that this is really for, uh, to give you feedback, to help you to learn and not to judge and evaluate. It, it's to give you a mm-hmm. sense of, okay, this is where you are, this is your progress, and, and why do you think you made this progress? What happened and what could you do to you know, change or do better? So with the idea of, of this is a development approach, so besides setting this like culture of this positive and open culture of learning, is that for, for many learners, it's not just one source of data. That's why for learning analytics, I think this is going back to what Ruth referred to as the big data architecture. We do not one just one source of data from the yeah. learner. We need multiple sources of data to triangulate, yeah. to be able to make sense. So that because one source may only represent one thing. Yeah, so that's why for my own work, I'm trying to use multiple sources of data to actually show like holistic picture of the child. So that's also another way forward and to you know, be critical of that data because that particular source may just mean this, but having a few sources and triangulating actually gives you a, a better sense. So that's also part of um, the reasoning and the rationale when I, principles as I, as I talk to the teachers and the learners that, that this is uh, indicators, this is not your whole life. <laughs> this is, the, these are just indicators and there are many things that will also help you give you feedback on this particular aspect of your 21st century skill, for example. Yeah, and just to add to that, learning analytics can only ever deal with indicators. Actually, learning always happens inside a person you know it, it's the the source of intelligent evolution or self-directed learning is something that can't be replicated or forced by another person or a technical system or a learning analytic we can only ever create the conditions for human beings to evolve intelligently towards a more sustainable future So one of the big challenges for developing 21st century competences in any context is the fact that such competences require you to work across disciplines and to be transdisciplinary in your approach. And most education systems, schools and universities are still basically siloed into the disciplines and the assessment framework is as well. It's very well said. (laughs) 
And and all of these tensions that you talked about, research, practice, what to put in front of the learner are applicable for all learning analytics applications. So what would be the next steps from here? From where I where I stand, there's a real challenge to do the pedagogical work around the underlying learning architecture that will support them and to develop pedagogically an accreditation framework or an assessment framework that will enable us to understand what creativity might look like or complex problem solving with a nine-year-old compared to a 29-year-old, for example. And alongside that, to develop formative and ipsative, i.e. self-directed assessment strategies and learning analytics to support the development of that sort of framework. And I think it's a, a global challenge that we should collaborate on globally, because until we have a robust way of understanding how to develop these things, then all of our learning analytics interventions are going to be piecemeal and fragmented. Right. What about you, Elizabeth? Tackling these different challenges uh, as, as we expand, as we scale, we find the technical aspect to be definitely challenging. But next thing is to is the dashboard visualizations. What, what kind of visualizations that will be reliable and even um, not only reliable, but uh, useful for different learners will be important. That's what we're developing as well as general but not so general but specific enough that it's useful for for them yeah because one size doesn't fit all one thing that works in one context might not work in another and there are other contextual factors that come into play yeah this would be the the stage of many of the learning analytics designs that start off smaller and trying to scale we also mentioned machine learning because that's where a lot of these uh, technological uh, augmentations or, or advances are in to do with uh, some forms of machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, types of algorithms. In general, learning analytics is, some people call it the second wave of learning analytics, multimodal learning analytics. So to do with sensors, face-to-face mm-hmm. kind of interaction that basically derive more indicators of learning wherever you are to be able to gather a better holistic sense of the learner. That's great. Thank you very much, Ruth and Elizabeth, for your expert insights. We are glad to have you on the show. Pleasure. At the end of a podcast, we invite a special guest to play a fun game called Two Truths and a Lie. Our guests will share with us three statements about themselves. Two are true and one is a lie that we should find out. In our last podcast, we played this game with Mike Sharkey and Alison Littlejohn. Here are their answers. Here are my two truths and one lie. Number one, I hiked across the Grand Canyon in one day. Number two, I appeared on the TV game show Jeopardy. And number three, I ran the New York Marathon. And the lie is number one, despite living in Arizona, I have not hiked the Grand Canyon. Okay, here are my two truths and a lie. Number one, I started my career researching explosives and rocket propellants. Number two, I lived in a croft in the north of Scotland for four years and learned how to shear sheep. Number three, I practiced kickboxing for several years. And the lie is number two. I did live in a croft in the north of Scotland for four years, but I never learned how to shear sheep. That's very difficult to do. Now let's invite today's guests, Ruth and Elizabeth, to give us their three statements for two truths and a lie. Thanks for having me on. So it's been a pleasure to be here. These are my three statements. First statement is, I play the cello. The second statement is, Growing up, I wanted to become an environmentalist. And the third statement is, my wardrobe is organized according to first in, last out. Oh. 
Okay. In 1984, I lived through and survived a cholera epidemic is my first one. My second one is in 1991, I worked with a peer in the House of Lords to write an amendment to an education bill, which went through into law. So every school in the UK has to report on the spiritual, moral, social and cultural development of its students. And the third one is in 2011, I was photographer of the year for the Amateur Photographer Society. Okay, interesting. We'll know what the truths are and what the lies are in the next podcast. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Solar Spotlight, conversations on learning analytics. You can subscribe to a podcast and find all available episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. An update regarding LAC21, the 11th International Learning Analytics and Knowledge Conference, LAC21, will be hosted fully online. As announced by LAC21 organizers and SOLAR on October 26th, due to the uncertainty around international travel because of COVID-19, we have made the decision early to prepare for a fully online version. We will also be going back to the Monday to Friday schedule. So please reserve Monday, April 12th to Friday, April 16th and join us online for workshops, keynotes, paper presentations, posters, demos and more. There is still time to submit a poster or demo to LAC21. The deadline is December 1st. For full LAC21 details, please visit lac21.solarresearch.org. This month is the start of the Society for Learning Analytics Research Executive Committee nomination process. Starting now until January 22nd, we will be accepting nominations for six member at-large positions and one student position to serve on the Solar Executive Committee. This is for a two-year term commencing at LAC21. If you're interested in helping guide the future of solar, please visit solarresearch.org to learn more or feel free to reach out to any current Executive Committee member to find out more. And don't forget to renew your membership or join the Society for Learning Analytics Research for 2021. Memberships are annual and you can join anytime. Be sure to check to see if your institution is an institutional member. For further information on Solar membership, you can email membership at solarresearch.org. My name is Shibani Antoinette and I've been talking to Ruth Crick and Elizabeth Ko today on the topic of 21st century skills and learning analytics. If you would like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag Solar Spotlight. Until next time.